good morning. Glad to see you here on this beautiful day. Let's all stand together and go to the Lord singing our praises.
First Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 9, the word of God says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's take a moment and pray. And however you need to, bowing in the pew or one of the prayer benches, standing, sitting. Let's thank God that he has chosen us.
Yeah, I know a lot of you guys don't watch those sermon bumpers, but I'm not sure how that got in there. Well, there was a great interruption this week in which uh, Baylor interrupted the undefeated season of uh, Gonzaga, and uh, just got to say, I, uh, I, I never went to Baylor except to visit the campus with my wife or my daughter and my parents. Went there, and my sister, one of my sisters went there, and uh, lots of relatives have gone there. And for those who are Baylor fans, just, just a little shout out for you guys, because Baylor has this thing called, you know, Sikkim Bears. And it's kind of like supposed to be threatening, like, we're going to get you. But in all my experiences of being with Baylor, most of the time, it's sick bears rather than Sikkim Bears. You're just always waiting for that moment when they're going to disappoint you, and uh, they did not uh, this Monday night. But, you know, more importantly than that, that was a great interruption, yes, and that helps us to see this whole concept of God wanting to interrupt our lives. But let me tell you about a, a greater interruption that deals with Baylor University. Scott Drew went there in 2003, and he audaciously made the comment that his objective was to win a national championship. In 2013 preseason, they were ranked number 10 in the nation, which was pretty astronomical for Baylor. But the season didn't play out quite the way that they had hoped, and in February, they had lost seven of their last eight games. They were 2-8 and eight in the Big 12, and on February the 4th, 2014, they were walking back to the locker room after being spanked by Kansas by 17 points. As they were going to the locker room, everybody was wondering, maybe it's time for Scott Drew to leave. Maybe his time has expired. Maybe we need to pull in someone that has a little bit more ability to win games. And he grabbed the chaplain as they were going into the locker room, and he made this statement, and you talk about great interruptions. We may not win another game this year, and I may be a horrible coach, but if any of these guys leave without knowing Christ, that will be the real loss. The gospel was shared, and five of them were baptized later that month. If you were watching the game, oftentimes you watch basketball with no spiritual connotation, uh, except that you're praying for your team to win. But you saw that the most outstanding player of the final four was Jared Butler. Jared Butler is a Christian young man. On Sundays, he's at his local church in Waco teaching Sunday school to kids. That's the kind of great interruption that we are talking about. And this morning, I want to spend some time sharing with you a great interruption that is taking place on the other side of the world. That's with our friends, Victor and Natasha, over in Rilsk, Russia. Victor and Natasha, if you would come up, and Yulia, Yulia is their daughter who is a member of our church, and Victor and Natasha obviously live over in Russia, and they are here visiting, and we're so delighted every time that they come to visit with us. And uh, Yuli is going to translate. We have a great relationship together, but all of our uh, conversations is through a language barrier. I don't speak Russian. They don't speak English. They, they speak a lot more English than I speak Russian. But I wanted to tell you just a little bit about their ministry over there because we have been friends with them for a long time, and we celebrate what they are accomplishing over in Russia. We have a couple of slides here. Victor uh, got very sick from COVID. He was hanging in the balance of life and death. He was 30 days in the hospital, 12 of those days, he was in ICU. But the facilities over there are far different than anything that you would see here. Uh, a hospital over there would look more like a, a, a shelter for us, a metal cot. And uh, he was uh, obviously on oxygen. You see 12 days that he was in the ICU. All of this time, his whole 30 days, he was completely isolated with no contact to the outside world, no phone, no way of any kind of interaction whatsoever. And while he was in ICU, very delirious, he was praying out loud and he was praying, inviting people in that room to come to Christ because so many of them were being carried out on stretchers no longer alive. And that's one picture of him in the hospital. That's his, his nurse. He never, he has no idea what his nurse looks like, his doctor, I should say, uh, because of the protective gear worn. But as you can see, the protective care is far less than what we have in the United States. But uh, that is him uh, on his way to making recovery. We have another slide here. And uh, this is the rehab facility that Victor and Natasha have let out in for so many years. Uh, we are a, a part of, of that rehab facility, just in uh, our encouragement to them. And as you look there, those are the guys that are a part of the rehab facility and making an enormous impact. Um, you think a rehab facility, it's, it's, uh, 
I always express concern about the, you know, what alcohol can do to people in Russia. They have one of the highest rates of alcoholism in the world. And uh, they are a much smaller country than ours. You think of Russia being a superpower and you, you kind of sense that maybe they're even larger than the United States, but their population is not quite even two thirds of the population in the United States. Yet they will have about a half million people die from alcohol related issues every single year. Alcoholism is rampant. And so having a rehab facility is so helpful. The government leans upon them and sends people their way because of the job they're doing. Let's look at another slide here. Um, this is them building a cellar because uh, um, staying self-sufficient is very difficult over there because of the economy. And they're building a, a cellar there so that they can store their produce and have enough food to eat throughout the winter. The winters are incredibly bitter cold. What we saw when ERCOT uh, had the power failure and we lost power and people were with, without power for days when the, when the weather was so cold, that's normal over there. They will be in their house huddled up with coats and uh, it'll be like in the teens or maybe zero inside the house. And so that's part of it. Uh, the next one, here's some guys from St. Petersburg. They have a great relationship. Clint Stewart set them up with some people in St. Petersburg. And so they will travel up to St. Petersburg, which is about an 18 to 20 hour drive. People from St. Petersburg will come down and help them to continue to strengthen and improve the rehab facilities. Josh, the next one we've got there. And uh, this, is, this is a picture I wanted you to see. This is a guy, because of the alcohol and the damage to his life, he's having to be carried to the rehab so that he can find help there. And Victor and Natasha are always welcoming anybody that comes. And the next slide is even more graphic. This is a man, it's hard to see, but he is crawling through the snow to get help at the rehab facility. He has absolutely no place else to go, cannot walk. He is so, such in bad shape, he's crawling through the snow to get there, and obviously they took him in. The next slide that we have there, Josh, I wanted, to, wanted you to see this picture as we think about just uh, continually sharing the gospel with people in our sphere of influence, in our community, and even around the world. But you see Natasha and a friend of hers, they're going out as part of the church. Every two weeks, they go out into the community to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, they print up materials so that people can know the gospel, take it with them. And they also, we'll see the next slide here. Uh, this is them posting where people can find help for rehab. It's hard to imagine that many people need help from alcohol addiction. But uh, they are posting that and people will come to them from that. Next slide we've got there, Josh. This is a map. I thought, how inspiring is this to us Christians in the United States? This would be, to put it in the context, this would be like Beaumont and the surrounding area. And this is the map that they have of where they go out every two weeks and they want to saturate that entire area and talk to everybody about Jesus Christ. And then the next map is a bigger map. The blue that you see there on the far left was that first map. And then they are expanding. This would be like the golden triangle in which they are going to further areas away, some of them even larger than the Golden Triangle, some of them uh, an hour and a half away, to share the gospel. They, from their church, are making that initiative. And you see there uh, some of the responses. When they receive Christ, they bow down on their knees, complete surrender uh, to Christ. And is that the last one we have, Joshua? We have another one. I can't remember on that. That's the last one. And so uh, I needed to share that story with you quickly rather than through all the translation. And, and Yulia has done such a wonderful job. She gets, she gets worn out. We were, we were at Logan's having a, a very long lunch the other day. Uh, and we were talking about all of these things. And uh, at a point, you know, her plate hadn't been touched. And I said, Yulia, I'm just going to talk to you. It's just you and me talking so you can eat. You go ahead and start eating. You don't have to translate this to your parents. So she got a couple bites in, in between the translating. But thank you for sharing and allowing us to have this relationship. But Victor and Natasha, we are so proud of you and the work that you're doing. Kingdom work. We're so thankful that, that you are here with us. Because when Victor was in the hospital, and church family, just you, you need to hear this. I don't know what... Um, Sometimes we believe about this fellowship that we have, but God has given us something pretty amazing. And while he was in the hospital, wondering if he was going to live or die, he prayed to God and he said, if I can just get back to Westgate to pray. That was a hope that he had. If I can just get well enough to get back to Westgate and to be able to pray in the church. And a couple of weeks ago, when we were in the 21 days of prayer and fasting, some of you guys thought we had turned Pentecostal because we invited anybody to pray. And all of a sudden, you, you heard a language you didn't understand, and that was Victor praying in Russian because that was his moment. And we're going to have him 
another moment for him to pray at Westgate because that was a hope. And he wants to share a couple of things with us. And so share with us, my brother. Мы в церкви получаем уроки. Но сдавать будем, когда болеем, когда какие-то проблемы, какие-то проблемы в семье. Когда вы сдадите экзамен, приходите в церковь и говорите перед церковью, что Бог вам помог, Бог вас вывел в трудной ситуации. И поблагодарите пастора, который учил вас. Трудный экзамен мне был, когда я болел ковидом. Немножко расскажу. Я читаю Библию и не понимаю. книги Колоссянам и Ефесянам. Я не знаю, что со мной происходит. Потом нас переводят, меня переводят в Курск на лечение в регион. Я продолжаю молиться. Но состояние организма уже никакое. И меня переводят в реанимацию 12 дней. Нет ни телефона, ни Библии. Не понимаю, что со мной происходит. И когда лежал я на больничной постели, выскакивает квадрат Я вижу русские предложения и слова. Не понимаю, что написано. Я прошу, Господи, я хочу видеть Твои слова здесь. Бог есть любовь. Бог помиловал людей. С этого момента пошло оживление. Двенадцать дней я вспоминал от бытия книги до откровения, до откровения что Бог написал в священной книге Библии для нас. В этот момент рядом со мной лежавшие люди, они умирали. И я хочу рассказать один случай, как человек хотел жить. Один человек умер, второго привозят вместо него. И он задает вопрос. Здесь умирают? Врачи нет, не умирают. Его положили. Ему плохо дышать. Он кричит, я хочу жить, умираю, дайте кислородом. А тут рядом лежит христианин Виктор. Я ему говорю, ты знаешь молитву Отче наш? Он говорит, не знаю. 
Молись за мной, Отче наш, Сущий на небесах. Помолился, да. Ты каялся. Он говорит, нет, не каялся. Повторяй за мной молитву покаяния. Господь, прости грехи. Рядом ходят врачи. Никто не перебивает. Never interrupting of that, of that happening. Как мы будем служить Господу Богу в трудных обстоятельствах жизни, когда больным? Ты знаешь Библию, они не знают. Я вспомнил один стих с Библии. Служите Господу Богу вашему. Я благословлю воду и хлеб. И отвращу от всех болезней. Это была моя молитва и служение в больнице. Я перед вами живой. Аллилуйя, слава Господу. Я благодарю, вам сообщили, когда была трудная ситуация, и вы молились за меня. Церковь большая ваша. Если вы не сообщите какую-то проблему, молитву, болезнь пастору, звоните, пишите, чтобы он молился за вас. И, вы... И тогда вы не будете одни. Церковь это семья. Любите друг друга. Молитесь друг за друга. И моя мечта была, когда был в больнице, перелететь через океан и здесь молиться. Я посещаю здесь молитвенные. В среду. И И сейчас хочу помолиться. Поблагодарить Господа. Господь Иисус Христос. Ты мой Отец. Мы дети Твои. Мы пришли в храм помолиться, поклониться, прославить имя Твое. Я благодарю, что Ты сохранил мою жизнь. И сказал, иди служи. Я благодарю за церковь, которая поддерживает большое служение в России. Дай мне до конца совершить суд Божий. Донести Евангелие для людей. Подарить Библию. Но прежде благодарю за церковь Росгейтс. За пастора Реймонда. Я благодарю тебя и славлю, Господь, за отвеченные молитвы. Я люблю тебя, Господь. Благослови церковь Росгейтс. Отец, Сын, Святой Дух. Аминь. И, дорогая церковь, когда к нам приезжали миссионеры, они мне постоянно дарили английскую Библию. Такие Библии мы дарим в России, и я, дорогой пастор, подарю русскую Библию. Здесь есть 
And I have something I want to give both of you because you are in your, in your midst of evangelism and discipleship. I, and they have a really cool app in which they are able to take their phone and they will put it over the page and they can read it in Russian. And so that will be a book that y'all can use in your discipleship of these uh, new believers in Christ. That's the kind of great interruption that John is talking about in his gospel. And you think about the interruption that happened in their life, and we've heard this part, this season of their life. But with Victor and Natasha uh, a number of years ago, when they were still in their early 20s, far away from God, had no interest. They didn't believe that there was a God based upon what they had been taught and raised all those years. And uh, Victor was in a, a knife fight with another man. And he was cut very close to his carotid, lost almost all of his blood, more than uh, would really justify him being alive. And when the ambulance came by, they took the other guy first. And um, by God's providence, the next person that came by in a car was a doctor who took him and administered what he needed. And obviously, he survived. And within about another, another 15 years, they would be at a Billy Graham crusade, and Victor and Natasha would both come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Talk about great interruptions in our life about how God works. Uh, Bert and uh, Brad, you guys just raise your hands over there. I want everybody to know, because there's always a connection point, but their family was the one that connected us with Victor and Natasha. The, the connection precedes even uh, my pastorate here, because long before I came here, there was a relationship going on. Clint and Janet have had it. You guys raise your hands. See, they have been missionaries over in Russia. They have a connection point. Clint was the one that connected them in St. Petersburg. Uh, God works in just incredible ways. And that's what John is talking about in this gospel, of how God wants to interrupt our lives, break through our status quo, break through our conventional thinking, as we talked about last week, break through the monotony, the routine, whatever it might be that keeps us from truly understanding God. And John 7 is a very unique chapter. It is going to be very chaotic. And I think John wrote it with that intent. I want to give you a little bit of the backstory of what is happening in John chapter 7. It's been 18 months since, since Jesus has been in Jerusalem. The last time he was there, we were reading in John chapter 5, that he healed a man that was crippled at the pool of Bethesda. He'd been crippled for almost four decades. He healed that man on the Sabbath, and that created an enormous stir. 18 months ago, Jesus left. He went north, up in Samaria, Galilee, and was ministering. And now he is coming back. John 6, as you recall, was a pivot point. That was a point in which we entered into the last year of Jesus' life and ministry. So John spans a lot of time getting up to John chapter 6. And then when we get to John chapter 7, we are coming to the last six months of Jesus' life. He's going to what's called the Feast of the Tabernacles. There were three particular feasts that the Jewish men were called to Jerusalem to come and celebrate, and each one had a different purpose. The Feast of the Tabernacles is when people would come together, and they would build like tents or sheds or little outdoor uh, shelters, and they would live in those things for a week, eight days. After Nehemiah, it used to be seven days. They moved it to eight days. So here you have this week-long celebration that Jesus has come down From the area of Galilee, he's come all the way back to Jerusalem, and six months later, he will die there in Jerusalem. Before he came back, there's an interesting little twist of Scripture there in the first part of John. John tells us, number one, that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. That's a very important piece of the puzzle for us to know as we go through this chapter. We're also told that his brothers didn't believe in him. He had four brothers. And they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. You can only imagine how difficult it was living with Jesus as your older brother that never sinned. 
Some of you maybe had a sibling that was kind of close to that, but it's pretty tough when Jesus is your older brother. And so they were always trying to take him down. And no matter how good he was, it's like, you may be good, but you're not that good. You're not really the Messiah. So they said, if, if you're really wanting to pull this thing off, I mean, and they were thinking, you know, there, there may be some positives for our, our family. There, there may be a little upswing for us if we get in on what he's doing, because he does do some pretty magical stuff. And so they're saying, if you really want to take it to the next level, you need to go down to Jerusalem, the capital, the big city where everybody is. You need to go down there and make a big fanfare parade. Because when people came to the Feast of Tabernacles, it was like a big parade. People didn't just come in sporadically. It was a big festive time. They were celebrating what God had done for them out in the Exodus of providing for them while they wandered in the wilderness and lived in tents. And they were celebrating the harvest, the fall harvest. It would take place at the end of September, the first part of October. They're celebrating. Everybody's happy. And they're saying, go get in on the parade. Go lead the parade. Be the guy that's in the front of the parade telling everybody that you are the Messiah. And he said, it's not my time. And he uses some interesting language there. In the original language, it means it's not my, not my time is in chronology. It's not my moment. Kairos, it's that opportunistic time. This is not my moment yet. So he doesn't go with them. But he comes halfway through the festival. And midpoint through the festival, we're going to see all of this chaos erupting. And I want us to feel the chaos. Uh, I was um, telling the, the group earlier, there was a number of years ago when I was a very young man, we had the opportunity to go to First Baptist Church of Houston. And that's where the legendary John Bassanio was the pastor. Some of you have no idea who that was. Long time ago, he was a legendary communicator. And as we were walking out, he'd been talking on the end times, had this whole series on the end times. And he was explaining through the series how everything came together and wanted everybody to understand that. We were walking out and a big crowd of people, there's this lady over here, we have no relationship to her, total stranger. She's walking out and she's saying loud enough for everybody to hear, I have been here for every one of his sermons and I still have no understanding, no clue what he's talking about. Well, if you walk away feeling that way today, I have succeeded in what I'm trying to do. You need to be confused because what John is communicating in John 7 is that there's so much misunderstanding about Jesus. Where do we live today? We live in a time in which the thought is nobody really understands who Jesus is. As, as Christians, and we look at culture, we say people don't have an idea who Jesus is. Very chaotic. We live in a time in which people have multiple ideas about how you can find God, how you can find many gods, many, many ways to find many, many gods total confusion. And so as John is writing about that, remember, purpose statement, John chapter 20, verse 31, the whole reason he's writing this gospel is so that you and I and everyone who reads this book would come to believe that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, the Messiah. And by believing, we will have. Believe and have are two really big words in this gospel. And he says, I want you to believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the world and have the eternal life that he offers. So in John chapter 7, he is helping us to realize that six months before Jesus will die for our sins, there is total confusion about what is going on. Starts off with uh, the very beginning of John chapter 1. It tells us that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. John puts that in there because later on in the chapter, we're going to see that they deny that they're trying to do that. John is setting the table to say, when Jesus goes down to Jerusalem, they want to kill him. Why? Because the fact that he is breaking their control. He is rattling their world. And so I want us to read, and Josh is going to help us as we go through. Thanks so much for all the, the guys in the AV uh, booth back there that keep us together. We're going to go through four different slides, and I want you to feel the chaos. Don't try to make sense of this. Don't try to figure it all out. Look and see the chaos of what John is talking about that surrounds who Jesus is. It says, number one, that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. We know that. We want to know that. It's important for us to know that. Verse 5, it says his brothers didn't believe in him. Jewish leaders are trying to kill him because he's saying the Messiah, his brothers don't believe him because he says he's the Messiah. And we're going to see the great interruption in their life. 
If you're reading through the yearly Bible reading calendar, you find that this last week, it says that his brothers didn't believe in Mark 6, that you read this last week. And then the week before, you found in Mark chapter 3, that his family was actually trying to save him from his own insanity, the delusions that he was the Messiah. They were trying to rescue and bring him back. But we'll see in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that when the disciples are gathered together in the upper room after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended, when they are gathered together praying, it says that the brothers of Jesus were there. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that, that chapter about the resurrection, that Jesus presented himself to James, his brother, who becomes the leader of the church. And this is a guy that would not believe in him even six months before he, go, he goes and dies on the cross. And so it says his brothers don't believe, and then there's widespread whispering. It says in verse 12, massive crowd gathered together at Jerusalem for one of the required feasts of all the men to come there. So there's, there's just hundreds of thousands of people there. And it says there was widespread whispering. Now, I can't see as well in the second service because the lights are down. But in the first service, whenever people begin to whisper, I know that something is going wrong. Something I've said something, or they don't understand what I'm saying, or something is really weird on the slides, or they just don't like what they're hearing. Widespread whispering usually means something good is not happening. And so there's widespread whispering around the crowd as to who Jesus is. Then some say, in verse 12, He's a good man. Feel the chaos. Some are saying in the, this massive crowd, he's a good man. And then it says, no, some are saying he deceives people. He's not just kind of a whacked out teacher. He is literally trying to get people off track with God. In verse 20, they say, you're, you're demon possessed. Why do they call him demon possessed? Because he said, you're trying to kill me. John already told us they were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him. And then when he says, you're trying to kill me, why were they trying to kill him? Because he had healed a man on the Sabbath 18 months ago, and they still had that in their system. That bothered him. They were more bothered that he had done something that didn't fit into their box of religion than the fact that a man was healed after being lame for almost 40 years. It goes on to say, who's trying to kill you? We're not trying to kill you. And then some are shouting over here, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Who's trying to kill you? Aren't, this is the guy they're trying to kill, right? Haven't the authorities already concluded that he's the Messiah in verse 26? Is he the Messiah? He's not. Have the, have the religious leaders concluded that he's the Messiah? Verse 27, we know where he's from, so he can't be the Messiah. Now, the thought there, so some, he must be the Messiah. The, Messiah. the religious leaders have concluded he's the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah because we know where he came from. The Sanhedrin had a phrase that said that when the Messiah comes, it will be just like a mystery of when a scorpion shows up. Now, you know, scorpions just kind of show up. I remember when I was a, a Boy Scout, and we were out at a jamboree, and uh, the guy that was in my tent with me in the morning, he picks up his boot to shake out the sand because it's a real dirty, sandy area. And when he picks his boot up, a scorpion falls out. I've never been camping since. I mean... That's the way scorpions are. How do they get in your boot? Um, you know, where do they come from? Well, that was their idea, that the Messiah is just going to break through the sky. Nobody's going to know where he's come from, and all of a sudden, he's going to appear. And so here's where they're saying, okay, he can't be the Messiah because we know that he's from Nazareth. Well, was he really from Nazareth? Well, that's where he grew up, but he was really from Bethlehem, and the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So the crowd tried to seize him. Okay, well, this guy's not the Messiah because we know where he's from, but now they're trying to seize him. The crowd is, not the religious leaders. The crowd is. And then verse 30, surely the Messiah won't perform more miracles than this man. So now we have another schizophrenic crowd saying, well, wait a second. Will the Messiah really do more than he is doing? Because we have seen these incredible miracles happening. And then the Pharisees send guards to arrest him. He's not the Messiah but they want to arrest him. And Jesus says, again, it's not my time. It's not my time to pay the price for your sins. And then Jesus says, it's not my time. And so they start asking the question, okay, is, is he leaving? 
Is he going to go away? Is he going to go talk to people, to Jewish people in, a, in another part of the world? Where, where is he going? Listen to the confusion. The Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. The brothers didn't believe. There's widespread whispering in the crowd. That's repeated twice in here. He's a good man. No, he deceives people. No, he's demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Even though we just said we're trying to kill you. Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Haven't the authorities already concluded that he's the Messiah? We know where the Messiah is coming from, so he can't be the Messiah. The crowd tried to seize him. Surely the Messiah won't perform more miracles than this man. The Pharisees sent guards to arrest him. Where's this man going? Is that not chaos? It's reflective of what John is trying to communicate is the absolute chaotic nature of how man thinks about God. We see that in our culture, but it can be even more refined than this. People can be sitting very politely and very reverently in a church and have a very chaotic understanding of God. False theology encompassed in all the ritual of religion. And so John is saying, don't be deceived. Many people have many ideas about who Jesus is, but he alone is the Messiah the Son of God, our only hope for the redemption of our sins. And that's why John would write later on, a few chapters later in John chapter 14, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely no one, absolutely no one, absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. So we have all this chaos. So the question is, how do you cut through the chaos? We live in a very chaotic culture. There are many ideas. It's been known, been stated, it's been revealed through, through demographics, through research, that America is now more spiritual than it was before the pandemic. But what does that mean? Does that mean people just have more ideas or they're more aware of the uncertainty of life? And so Jesus gives us exactly what we need to cut through the chaos. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances, by what you hear, by what people have said, by something that maybe someone wrote. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly, accurately, rightly. What is John saying? You see all the insanity of thought about Jesus in this chapter. Judge correctly about who Jesus is. And John didn't finish his book there. He's just saying, from here on out, as you read the rest of the last six months of his life, judge correctly as to who Jesus Christ is, because if we don't get it right who Christ is, we will never reap the benefits of his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, and his power in our life. A verse that I love from the New Living Translation, the way that it's written in Philippians 3.10, I talked about it last week in the Easter message. Paul was saying, I can really know Christ. We can really know Christ. There's not some mysterious God. And, and Christianity uniquely says we can know God. There is no other religion that says you can have an intimate relationship with God. It tells you what you can do and how you can work and try to earn your way to heaven, but uniquely Christianity says you can have a relationship where you can really know Christ and, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Wouldn't you like to see the mighty power of God work in relationships, in the brokenness, to bring healing in people's lives, to bring redemption, to see people's lives changed and transformed. I'm an old man, and I've lived long enough to see what we can do by ourselves. I'm excited to see what God can do, the mighty power that raised Jesus Christ back to life, what He can do in our lives. So He is the only, unless we get it right with Christ, nothing else will matter. Uh, you probably have a, a, a phone that has a passcode on it, right? And your phone will do all kinds of incredible things. 
In fact, if you can do 5% of the potential of your phone, you're doing probably above average. But you know what? You will never experience the benefits of your phone unless you have the passcode. And there's only one passcode. There's not like 10 or 15 or 20 or 100 ways to get into my phone. I believe there are many ways to access my phone. Surely there's not just one and you have one unique passcode that goes in there. And once you get the passcode correct, it opens up all of the benefits of the phone. And that's what John is saying in John 7. Jesus is the passcode to relationship with God and all that that brings. You may have read the, the story about uh, Stefan Thomas. He's a guy who lives out in San Francisco. He bought Bitcoin, Bitcoin at $2 a piece. And now, you know, Bitcoin is almost at $60,000 per Bitcoin. So he has probably in the neighborhood of about a half million dollars. But he can't remember his passcode. And because it's secured with iron key, he only has 10 tries. He's down to his last two. And if he doesn't get it right in the next two attempts, all that money is forever gone. And John... 7 is basically saying the same. Unless you get it right with Christ, nothing else will matter. So the question today is, are we judging correctly, rightly about Christ? Have you judged that he is your greatest need to save you from your sins? And so in praying and asking him to forgive you of your sins and become the Lord and Savior of our life? See, God loves us, and he's created us to have a relationship with him. But there's only one passcode that will get us into that relationship with God, and that's Jesus Christ. And when we humbly repent of our sins, Jesus will resolve that problem, and he will give us eternal and abundant life. If you're here today or listening online and you've never received Christ, I pray in just a moment you would pray to receive Christ in a prayer similar to the one that I will pray. It's not a magical prayer. This is not the prayer. It's just a reflection of the heart of your desire for God. And as I talk about this and think about this, for all the rest of us that are already believers, the question is, have we shared this good news? Have we shared this passcode with someone that doesn't know Christ in the last week or the last month or the last year? Or is it a passcode that we are just keeping to ourselves rather than sharing so other people can experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead? So let's pray. God, as we come to the conclusion of this worship service, we actually come to the culmination in which we are invited to judge correctly about who you are. And I pray that if anyone in this room or listening online has never received Christ as the Lord and Savior, that initial step of punching in the passcode that brings us into a relationship with you, that this would be the day that they would say a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. But for those of us as followers of Christ, as Christians, please purge our hearts of anything that we are holding back from you. Have we made you complete Lord of our life? Have we given you that all-access pass to every area of our life, or is there something that we're holding back? God, may we release that to you and therein find the freedom, the joy, the power, that relationship with you. God, may your, may your power, favor, and blessing rest upon us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And if you want to respond to anything that we've experienced in worship, know that we'll have staff over at the, the prayer benches, over at the crosses, out in the atrium. You can pray at the altar or anywhere. You may just want to pray where you are. But if you need help, assistance, or just someone to walk with you uh, through some questions about, uh, about Christ, having a relationship with him, uh, know that we'll be available for you. So let's all stand together and uh, let's respond as we culminate this experience of worship.
again.